0: Welcome to Resident Advisor's Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is recorded live at the Take Note conference in London, where RA Stephen Titmus talked to legendary British DJ Norman Jay. His Good Times sound system changed the face of Notting Hill Carnival, and he was a key presence at KISS FM, which is arguably the most important pirate radio station of all time. He went on to start the Talkin' Loud label with Giles Peterson, and has even been awarded an MBE by the British monarchy for his services to music. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Norman J is up next.
1: Okay, well thank you all for joining us here today Take Note, this is the last uh, discussion of the day. I'm Stephen Titmus, and I'm a staff writer at Resident Advisor and I'm here with Norman Jay. And if you don't know Norman Jay, this man is London club culture personified. He's been doing it for 40 years and from anything from Carnival to Kiss FM, Norman's been a driving force. And today we're gonna dive into his storied career and hopefully give you guys some pearls of wisdom. So ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Norman Jay. So Norman, I think a good place to start would yeah. be the start. When did you first become aware of DJing?
2: Well, I've always been aware of DJs, but it has to be said that I didn't really have growing up as a, as a young kid in, in London in the 60s, didn't really have any club DJ icons. There were a few I'd, I'd heard of, but you know, um, for me, it was all about the music that was being played, not the person playing the music. That's something that kind of developed many years later. But I'm a, a clubbing kid of the 70s. I've been clubbing from the 70s, 80s, 90s. <laughs> Even now, still out there, still doing stuff. Um, and it's amazing to watch how the role of the DJ has kind of morphed into this kind of superstar thing where they're almost fated. I mean, when I began DJing, the losers and the geeks did the DJing. You know, you drew the short straw, which meant you couldn't enjoy the party, couldn't be part of it, couldn't chase the girls. Yeah, the loser always ended up playing the records.
1: <laughs> when did that start to change, do you think, from becoming more of a a figure that people looked up to?
2: I guess growing up, you know, I was a serial clubber, an almost geeky record collector, serious collector of black music. I bought my first record when I was about eight or nine years old, and I've been buying and collecting and amassing music ever since. And then, you know, one goes through a period, and I'm sure some of the members of the audience have been the same, when you you reach a kind of stage where uh, you're very narrow, in your acceptance of music. And the great thing about getting older, becoming more mature about it, is that your music horizons and borders broaden and you kind of complete the circle. But yeah, as, as a teenager, I only liked the newest, latest music. Never looked back. Wasn't interested in what got played yesterday. I was only interested in what was coming out tomorrow. No, all of it is relevant and it all has its, its place in the scheme of things. So, yeah, I, I lo- still love and play a lot of old music across all genres because this old bastard has been around since the beginning of time. Was there at the, at the birth of disco, was there at the birth of hip-hop, was there at the beginning of house, uh, was there at the beginning of drum and bass and basically been there, done that.
1: And I think it's worth saying, you say, been there, yeah. you were literally there for a lot of these things, you know, you went to a block party in the 70s. Yeah, you know, yeah. you know, yeah. Can you tell us about some of those, yeah. I guess, pivotal club experiences in your life?
2: Yeah. I guess from my peer group, some of you may or may not know the recent passing of um, the great David Mancuso. He was a few years older than me, but what he was doing or did in New York in, in those early days, a few years later, completely unknown and unrelated, my career was treading a similar path. Doing my own parties, my own promotions, firstly in any space I could get, because even though I'm born, lived in England all my life, you know, I'm still old enough to remember a time when blacks really weren't welcomed into London clubs or any clubs in the country. And you'd rock up at the door to be told, sorry, mate, not your night. And that was a regular and accepted occurrence in London through the 70s, 80s, and to a much lesser extent in the 90s. You know, when you're faced with that kind of um, oppression and racism, you can take one or two paths, which... One, you can be embittered and resentful about the whole thing. Or you can use that experience to inspire you to go ahead and do your own thing. You know, not to be beaten by them or the system. And I chose the latter. Yeah, after I remember going to a club on my 21st birthday, being knocked back. And it was that moment I kind of had an epiphany. And I thought, well, I need to stop going to these places. I need to do my own thing. You know, I'm of the age where, you know, the whole punk rock celebration came about, you know, all my peer group of first generation punks who challenged the system, challenged the status quo. And I took that into the promotion of my parties. I thought, well, I'm going to do parties where anybody's welcome. Anybody can come, uh, regardless of race, gender. You know, I had, uh, I grew up, you know, as a black working class kid in Notting Hill. You know, my best friends were were white and Asian and Jewish. And, uh, you know, I had friends, you know, who were gay, lesbian, and I made no distinction. So my parties were was about welcoming and celebrating all of that. It didn't matter who you were, where you came from, so long as you brought a smile and a good vibe, you were welcome at a Norman Jay party.
1: Absolutely, and I think what's um, remarkable certainly about your early parties were was the sound system culture, how you fused yeah. sound systems and you know soul and funk music. Mm. You know, maybe just tell tell people a little bit about your brother and how he started doing his thing and how. That's that's just an interesting story. Yeah.
2: Well, it was great listening to one of your panelists from goodness from the sound system who did all the, all the PAs. Is it David? Uh, anyway, Tony. Tony, yeah, yeah. Beg your pardon. Sorry, Tony's next door. Loved what Tony was saying um, about that the evolution of of you know the work he was doing with sound systems, and uh, you know I and my brother were doing it. Exactly the same thing, but on a much more micromanaged level. We simply didn't have the resources. So we would take old televisions, old radiograms, and recondition them (laughs) and use them. You know, we, well, not so much me, my brother, my younger brother Joey, sort of, he's a self trained sound engineer. Um, There wasn't anything electronic he couldn't fix and reuse. I mean, looking at the speaker cabinets today, they cost thousands of pounds. It's the latest high tech. We would build our own, using old wardrobes, bits of wood salvaged from wherever we could, big borrowed steel, solder wires together, and we'd go into you know electronics component shops. You see these old boys in their brown overalls going, oh, "Can't do that. If you put that, that won't work." Yeah. Week in, week out, we used to defy those sort of blokes and prove them wrong. As every sound system operator of a certain age and generation knows, nothing's impossible. If you've got the will and the mind to do it, you can achieve it.
1: And uh, you and Joey built up that sound system to something that, you know, almost rivals some of the big reggae sounds as well, uh, eventually.
2: Well, it it did. I mean, our sound system, for those of you who who don't know, you can go away and Google it all later. And thanks to the, the wonders of YouTube, there's some semblance of our good time history is up on YouTube. But, you know, we were the first generation of... DIY, when it came to building sound systems, putting on parties. It was interesting to listen to some of your panellists saying, like, today's requirement, you've got to have a publicist, you've got to have this, you've got to have that. We did it all ourselves, because when we did it, we actually wrote the rule book. There was no rule book when we did it. So we made it up as we went along. Obviously, different time, different climate. But yeah, we built our own sound system using reconditioned decks, reconditioned amplifiers, because we simply didn't have the money or the resources to do it. Because all my money went on fanatically buying records, <laughs> and and that's what we did. We built our own sound, which gave us the independence, the freedom, to go and and try and make a career for ourselves.
1: So I want to talk about Notting Hill. Obviously, you have a long yeah. relationship with that. You actually grew up in Notting Hill as well. Um, yeah, I, was, I was born in Notting Hill. Yeah. yeah, but you weren't necessarily always a fan of the carnival. Tell us about how you first decided to get involved with with that side of things?
2: Well, carnival for me started when I used to be forced to go there. You know, didn't really get carnival in the beginning. It was something the old folks from from the old country went to. But as soon as I became a teenager, it kind of drifted in because a few sound systems were there and that's what appealed and gave me a sense of purpose when I saw them. I thought, yeah, one day that's going to be me. One day, that's going to be us, good times. And it inspired my brother as well. So he built his sound system in the snow, in the rain. You know, what kids would do that today? And he called it um, Great Tribulation, because of the, the Great Tribulation he went, you know, he underwent to build it. And it was a traditional reggae sound system, my brother being a Rasta. And he built uh, the sound system to kind of um, Rasta ideals and stuff and me being a serial party person who went to a lot of the, the you know the then very hip and trendy jazz funk and soul clubs and gay discos and Studio 54 and Paradise Garage you know i wanted to use a sound system that reflected that and it was just one of those light bulb moments in 1979 i just got back from a trip from from new york filled with just the most amazing things because up until then, you know, America was completely out of, off limits. Well, when I say that only due to um, not being able to afford it. I mean, it's weird now, you guys can just jump on a plane and go anywhere you want in the world, but you know, it was a king's ransom to go to, to America in those days. It might as well have been the moon. I managed to get to New York, 99 quid return, $3.62 to the pound. So I arrived in New York as a, like a dollar millionaire. Yeah. Discovered all the record shops. And bought tons of music, more music than I can remember, because in those days there was a restriction for import and export. You know, I went there, I came back with bags loads of music, and then I had to pay tax on it. <laughs> so you quickly learn. So, you know, all your old junk records, you declare when you leave a Heathrow, you go out, throw them all away when you get there, and you come back in with your new stuff. <laughs> and and that's what we did. So we made a, uh, our debut at Notting Hill Carnival in August 1980. And it was a baptism of fire, because you know I was young, fearless, stars in my eyes thinking, yeah, we're going to change the world. And we brought our little sound system into a Carnival. And my whole modus operandi was to not go there and do the same as everybody and everything else. You know, I went there with a completely different agenda with regards to music. So I turn up at Nottingham Carnival, playing soul, playing jazz, playing gay disco, and we were faced with um, with death threats. I can remember cans and bottles full of piss were thrown at me. I was told, "Take off that gay music!" Da, 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 and things were getting heated because in those days, carnival, let me tell you, was wild west, not the carnival you know and love now. Carnival used to begin on a Friday, and it would end on a tuesday morning <laughs> for us anyway and the music would go all day all night all day all night until in the late 80s they kind of brought some semblance of order and put a structure in which we all adhered to but in the wild west days yeah so uh, i go there i'm playing this kind of music and i was undaunted undeterred because i knew sooner or later that you know good people would get to hear this music and um, you know our reputations will be made, but I need to explain because I guess some of you've been to, to good times at Carnival where we are at Southern Row, but that was only our second home. For ten years we were right in the heart of Carnival, you know, in the belly of of the beast, so to speak, on Cambridge Gardens, where we were there from 1980 to 1990, and then because of the violence, I decided to. Um, Bite the bullet and make the move north to Southern Row, which, which is almost akin to leaving London and moving to Newcastle. <laughs> Nobody wanted to move away from Carnival. Everybody wanted to move closer. So I made, took the executive decision to move the Sound to um, Southern Row in 1991, and that's where we remained until 2013.
1: You obviously had a Hugely long tenure at Notting Hill. um, Other standout memories of, of so many great parties, there must be so many.
2: Well, I mean, Carnival obviously for good times put us on the world stage, but before, and the importance of sound systems, of playing at Carnival was back in the day, that was the only platform that we had. You know, there were no black DJs working in London or anywhere in the country. We weren't on radio, we weren't on television. You know, I'm the first of that generation to um, challenge that status quo. And a little bit of trivia, you know, I was the first black DJ to be interviewed in the NME in 1982. And th- that was groundbreaking, because when that happened, actually when the r- the guys tried to talk to me, um, I was fearful of all agents of the state. <laughs> I'm thinking, why would the NME be interested in us? So I refused to talk to them, wouldn't wouldn't do the interview. And then I spoke to some peers at the time who persuaded me, well, Norman, maybe it might be a good thing to do. Looking back, that was probably the best advice I was given. So, yeah, I, I did the interview. And what that kick-started, what that initiated, was that it obviously opened me up to a, a white audience, you know, of um, essentially rockheads, but not just rockheads and um, read the enemy, And it was a national thing. You know, we were existing in our little Notting Hill bubble, the world was great, you know, and we loved the music we were playing, and the little crowd loved what we were doing. But so when we moved to our present location at Southern Row, and it was again another little bit of trivia. We were the first sound system to use the internet and stream. I think it was in 2000 or 2001, because I had a friend. He who was, he's been an internet geek since 1983. He was on the net in '84, and he kept persuading me, Norman, you need to get on it. I said, What's the internet? Da, da, da. I thought he was balmy, so I, I, I swerved him for a long, long time. He said, I'll build you a "I built your website. You don't have to pay me for it. Just come round to my flat and see." And this would have been 1990, 91, and then one day he he caught me unawares. Brought me around to his flat and I just see like two or three screens. He switched it on and he, you know, and I'm still one of those today. I'm a one finger typist. He said, just type this little message in. I didn't know it was a message or chat room, you know. And then within seconds, well, not seconds, within minutes, people responding to me from New York, Buenos Aires, Amsterdam and Sydney in Australia. I couldn't believe it. And it was at that moment I knew this is the future. So, you know, I was one of the first DJs to register a domain name. He did all of that for me, you know, so I still didn't have a clue what I was doing. But even then, I, I realized the importance. And the following year, he got BT to dig and put a cable in. So, you know, because I didn't understand about broadband speeds and all of this stuff, I still don't. But I gave him his head and let him do it because I knew. This this was the future.
1: So Norman Jay also invented DJ streaming as well. Yeah. Nice, yeah. nice
2: one. <laughs> well, all I can say, not now, but we went through a period for about 20 odd years where we were the industry leaders. We did everything first. I know it's a big claim to make, but those claims can be backed up and substantiated thanks to the internet we did a lot of things first you know i know for a fact that we were the first sound system to break with the with the reggae tradition of using one table you know i had my first technics in 1983 took me a year to save up for one <laughs> and about 6 months to save up for the second one and we used technics and i was really into the idea of continuous music You know, years of going to America, going to New York, watching the the street DJs cutting and scratching, and this was a new art form. And I'm thinking, this is great, because back in England we still had the smashy and nicey way of talking and presenting and all of that cheesy nonsense. And I, I go to New York, I go to Brooklyn, I go to the Bronx, you know, and I'm watching all of this stuff, and instantly you know that's the future, you know. It's great um, because you know on those travels, you know I met up with, them. Um, we're still friends today with a few of the, the icons in hip hop, like Africa Bambaataa. With few exceptions, all the, the big house DJs in the '90s, Tony Humphreys, David Morales, I could name drop. Louis Vega, you know, uh, Louis Vega used to stand in the crowd at my night, at Dingwalls, and I remember stopping the music, pulling him out of the crowd, and going, stopping the music. And going, this guy is going to be absolutely massive because I was playing his first ever track. And within three years, the world discovered the masters at work, like Kenny and Louie.
1: That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Out of all of the many, many club experiences you've had, I th- it seems like such an obvious question, but for someone who's experienced so much, it seems good. What is the best club you've ever been to?
2: Well, as a DJ or as a punter? I mean, either. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think, as a punter, uh, on many levels, a lot of people make that, that claim, but I used to go to the Paradise Garage a lot. I've got a cousin, a New Yorker cousin, who now lives in England. A few of the kids on the on the UK house scene know him as Terry, the native New Yorker. That was his nickname. And I had a few friends here. One of them was involved in starting up the Ministry of Sound, Justin. Well, they, we were like a little... Um, New York-London Brat Pack at the end of the 80s. And that in that Brat Pack was um, Judge Jules, who was a lifelong friend of mine, um, Justin Berkman, who went on to build and open the uh, Ministry of Sound, and a, a few other guys. And uh, Justin was a member, as my cousin was, was a member. And because of our London accents, we were always able to jump the queue and go in to um, listen to Larry Levan in the Paradise Garage. And I loved it, not just for the music, because the weird thing was, I had a lot of the music he was playing. But it was down to the sound system culture. You know, it's just the way that the sound could be panned around, and Larry or his sound engineer would be manipulating the sound around the club. It's absolutely incredible. This was like a 98% gay night. We're the only straight kids in there. You know, long before house music became sort of mainstream white, it was black, Hispanic, gay, for years. And if you really need to experience the emotion and the feeling of that, those are the sort of places that you needed to go to, like there, or the tunnel, or Nell's Sound Factory, uh, there was a load. But all those clubs are brilliant but I still maintain the best clubbing experience is found right here in the UK. Um,
1: Any club club particular or just the overall culture?
2: Uh, The overall culture, America or New York has a great way of reinventing and rewriting their, their club history, but it was never as mixed and vibrant and creative as ours. I know because I was there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like one club that I know that's been really important to you, and perhaps not that many people in this room might know of, is, is Crackers, which you once said was like the paradise garage of, of, yeah, of, of yeah, London. Yeah, it
2: was, but again, on a micro, on a, on, a, on a much more micro level, this club used to stand at the top end of um, Wardle Street in London uh, many years ago, I think. What's the guy from Yorkshire with the long hair? He's always got
1: Stringfellow. <laughs> Stringfellow. Yeah. Peter
2: Stringfellow bought the building and turned it into whatever he turned it into. But for years, it was a seminal underground club in London. Part of the reason why it's gone down in sort of London folklore is because it's one of the few places where blacks could go. And it was mostly sort of straight black working-class kids went there. A few black lesbians would go there but the coolest cutting-edge people who were making things happen in London went there. A lot of fashion designers, a lot of um, art and film creatives would be there, firstly on a Wednesday night, then on a Sunday. Part of its appeal and legacy was that it was, it was the first place to have a Friday lunchtime disco. You believe it, this place used to be packed from 12 o'clock till 4, every Friday, You know, all my mates bunking off college, bunking off school, it was young, it's like a teenage disco, but the DJ there, George Powell, would play the same cutting edge music that he'd played to the older crowds you know on a Sunday or on a Tuesday. But on a Friday lunchtime, he'd go out there and you know he'd sweat. And then you'd have to make excuses as to why you missed lectures, you know, or lessons at school. It was it was amazing. And that's never been repeated.
1: Yeah, and I think the list of people that were inspired by that club, you know, yourself, Fabio, Cole Cox, Trevor yeah. Nelson, you We've, know. That- you
2: know, all my peer group of of DJs went. The legendary Paul Anderson used to DJ there when he was only 15. He wasn't even old enough to get in the club. But, you know, at that time, he was ranked as one of the best disco dancers in in London on that scene. There were a few, Terry Farley from Boyzone, Paul Oakenfold. It was such a small um, scene. You knew everybody, it's not like today's club line, you can stand in a club and you don't know anybody. But it, it was part of an underground movement. If you were discerning or you were that way inclined, you found yourself there. It wasn't that somewhere you just click and look and think, oh, I'll go down there tonight. No, because you went there because it was special and because no one else knew about it. So there was an element of elitism about it, just like the WAG club followed a few years later.
1: Absolutely. And I think you would have a really interesting perspective on this because you've seen so many genres coming through. What? do you feel have been the big turning points in like London's club culture, you know, house music coming through, things like drum and bass, UK Garage, you know, what do you sort of feel that are the ones that have really switched things up?
2: The one thing that not many people have picked on, but this is actually true, the one thing that London had from the early 80s was a burgeoning and then a thriving pirate radio network. Very few countries in the world allow anybody to use tv stations or to use radio stations i think in america there's it's a capital sentence same in australia it's life imprisonment for think about it you know when you watch these old films of that when there's a revolution in a country or insurrection what's the first place that they take over the radio station or the tv station the means of mass communication but for whatever reason the dti department of trade and industry who govern the the radio thing, Allowed people like me. There was a few others. We weren't the first to use the, the airwaves. I mean, now you've got the internet, so it doesn't really matter. But in those days, this, I'm talking pre-internet. One took a massive risk to build a, a rudimentary radio station and go on air. You know, we could have been preaching any kind of sort of <laughs> insurrection, but we didn't. We went on there to play music. But back back to my original point: the birth of the you know of the pirate radio station. Was a brand new platform for emerging talent, new old music, and as more and more people who could find you on the dial tuned in, there began, you know, an, another sort of underground network. Pirate radio was hugely important, hugely, hugely. It can't, you know, overstate its importance. And it just meant that, for the first time, we had access to an audience on the airways. So we didn't know who was listening or how many. That didn't matter, the fact that you're on there. And it was great, because it was a platform for many, well, all of my peer group of DJs, who then, the BBC, came along and hoovered them all up and used them. You know, People like Pete Tong, Giles Peterson, Tim Westwood. You know, I could name untold people who Careers like mine began in pirate radio because I was a founder member of Kiss.
1: I'm going to say, um, yeah. obviously, Kiss became a legal station, the first legal station to play music of black yeah, origin. That's
2: right. Yeah, yeah, that was the that was the creed that we had: music of black origin, which kind of gave us a remit to play music that was black and non-black. Because I really wasn't comfortable with that term of just black music. You know, uh, like today's digital music is made by anybody anywhere, so it's irrelevant, really. But back then, you know, there was different times. It was, it was really important. It was a starting point. You know, it's, I think it's fair to assume or to say that where we are now in terms of club culture, particularly in the UK, was as a direct result of you know a few of us taking a risk, <laughs> a big risk, because we risk imprisonment. It wasn't the prison that scared us; it was the confiscation of your music. You know, that was a huge, well, for many of us, including me, that would have been too big a price to pay.
1: Throughout your career, you've sort of been somewhat of an outlaw, you know, running warehouse parties when you're not meant to, running stations when you're probably not supposed to. Do you think that sort of DIY aesthetic is really still prominent today with with Uh. club culture?
2: No, I don't think that that's prominent at all, for loads of different reasons. Without trying to sound like some old school... When it was just records and it was just music, you had to be discerning. Different shops sold different music. So it meant that the DJs they produced would have their own kind of individual identity. That all died when it was down to streaming or picking up your music from two or three. It narrowed the choice of where... I can't remember what you called those things, so I don't buy music from them, but there's two or three music sites. Where you can buy your music at a time when paradoxically, more and more people were aspiring to be DJs. But then the source of obtaining your music was narrowed down. So, in a sense, all the DJs kind of sounded the same, whether they knew it or liked it or not, because there was only a limited or controlled amount of sources where they could get the music. But, you know, prior to that situation, certain. Tracks would arrive in London. You know, London being a major city in the world, you know, in the, in the central London, in the Soho record shops, they could be getting anything up to half a dozen deliveries of music a day. And if you went out to the provinces or, or the areas where they only get one delivery a week, uh, and it depended, you know, who was importing the music from where. So you know, in the terms of house music, you know, London was the first place outside of America to get house music. But actually, London was the last place to properly and fully acknowledge it. Where in the regions, and particularly in, in Sheffield, Nottingham, I remember, Manchester, they were already onto to house music long before London was.
1: Why did it take such a long time to take off? I guess you was part of the problem, really, <laughs> yeah, running a ra- rare
2: groove. Yes, I was part of the problem, I guess. But privately, no, I was always into house. Because I can remember when the house music tour, the tracks tour came in 87 with Farley, Jack, Master Funk, and all of those. They did a show in Leicester Square, London. I think if 100 people showed up in that venue, when I went on the road with them, went to Nottingham, sold out, 800 people. Went to Manchester, Hacienda, it's a couple of thousand people. So the North had about a year's head start on London before we finally got it.
1: And what made London get it?
2: Pirate Radio. Yeah. Yeah, Pirate Radio and the warehouse party culture. Before the North had it, we were already doing it. I know because I did them. And a lot of the people who went on to run the biggest parties, illegal parties, you know the M25s and all those raves, they were all dancing in front of my DJ booth. And that's how I got to know them. Because in the earliest rave parties, the sound system they used was good times. Even in Shum, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Shum, London's preeminent first Acid House club, um, DJ'd by Danny Ramplin and the late, great Colin Favor. You can always Google these names. And the history will become apparent. The sound system in Shum was good times.
1: Was that an interesting thing to see this mm. kind of whole new way of clubbing, you know, like ecstasy comes on the scene, yeah. people start wearing all these hippie clothes. Yeah, yeah. Was that as a stylish well, soul I, boy? I,
2: I, I got to attribute that infamous or, or famous quote to Terry Farley when he said, in my film documentary years ago, drugs changed everything. (laughs) Which, you know, someone who doesn't do drugs never did, and a lifelong teetotaler. The irony is I've kind of made a career out of, you know, the music in the drug culture. Because let's face it, you know, club music would not work unless people took drugs. Simply doesn't.
1: A fairly (laughs) uncontroversial point, (laughs) I guess. But but true. Yeah, I mean, yeah. True. Yeah. Let's like just zoom forward yeah. about 30 years quickly, because you made this great status at Notting Hill Carnival, you know, made it a world-famous event, a big mm. part of it, but you eventually left there. I just want to talk about the decision to actually leave Notting Hill Carnival, Good Time Sound System.
2: Well, yeah, it was a sad decision when I was playing the closing tracks at our final carnival in August 2013. But I already knew about three, possibly four years before that, that the whole area was going to be up for redevelopment and um, I just couldn't come to an arrangement with the local council, the carnival operators and essentially the police as to where we could be rehoused. We were already in the biggest and best spot there as far as I was concerned and if I couldn't find anywhere that was suitable then I would walk away from it. It was one of the most difficult decisions I've ever had to, to make on that particular day because I can remember it vividly. At the end, about 10 minutes past 7 on the last day, on the Monday, there was probably 10, 12,000 people going mad, giving us you know, a standing ovation at the end. And I can remember on the mic going, yeah, thanks again, everybody. Th- thanks for coming. Hope we've made a difference. We'll see you next year. It was probably one of the biggest lies I've ever told because I knew we weren't coming back. But, uh, you know, one never says never. But even now, circumstances mean that we couldn't come back there even if we wanted to. They've redeveloped the site. The conditions of our license of being there have changed massively. But what not a lot of people know is that I used to personally stand the cost of putting Good Times at Carnival every year, which was a huge amount of money because I. I had this overwhelmingly strong belief in maintaining a sound system culture. I felt I owed it because this was the the culture that gave me my start. You know, I didn't start in clubs. I didn't start on the radio. The only platform that a lot of us had back in those days was the two days to play at Carnival. So I felt I owed the event something. You know, Carnival's free. Still the only free event in the country that gets even more people in Glastonbury. But, you know, it's an event, you know, I've loved, I still love dearly, been there so long, watched the crowds grow up, watched the crowds change. I watch people come there with their kids. I even see people come there with their grandkids. It's amazing, really special, never to be repeated. So, uh, yeah, we, we couldn't go back there even if we wanted to.
1: Do you think the event still has a viable future or do you think it's just going to change...
2: It has to change in order for it to survive. But, you know, saying that, there's an awful lot of people out there that confuse what Carnival is or what it's all about. For many people, Carnival is good times. (laughs) No mention of the floats, no mention of the the cultural relativity of of the whole event. For most who come there, you know, we were a one stop destination. You come to Good Times, you see all your friends there. You get the best atmosphere, get the best music, get the best girls, <laughs> best food, and some cynics, and observers of carnival, will have suggested that there's two carnivals. There's the black carnival at the south end at Colville, and then there's the white carnival around Normans. Now that really used to irritate me, really used to irk me, but you know we had an unblemished record there for 30 years. Not one incident. We get the best crowds of people from all over the world. It's hugely international, and I think it's a fairer reflection of what London is today. There are some hardline cynics within it who just—I wish they'd just fuck off and die. Really, you know—they've been around. They've been around too long. It's not our carnival anymore. Well, actually, it never was your carnival. It's an event that has a life. And the life of it is the people who come. And it, it's open to all. And that's why my music policy used to reflect that. You know, I play white records, I play rock records, I play whatever I think or I know my crowd likes. It, it's obviously underpinned by the black Afro-Caribbean experience in England. But like I said, you know, I have Jewish friends, I have middle-class friends, I have Asian friends. I have friends, straight, gay. And that's what London is to me, and that's what is good times. If you listen to that record by Chic, the lyrics for that will explain exactly where my head's at and still is at.
1: And um, obviously, Notting Hill is changing, the gentrification, yeah, but yeah. one part of this whole problem is the government, really. You know, Do you think the current government really supports electronic music and dance music in the way it uh, should do?
2: No, they don't. And then, why should they? You know, in this world of increasing uncertainty, uh, whether people like it or not, you know, the whole music thing, dance music thing, is so low on the list of priorities. You know, we've got people fleeing the African continent, dying in the Mediterranean. <laughs> you know, we've got thousands, hundreds of thousands of refugees, homeless, stateless, hungry. I don't think you can put electronic music into that. But saying that, you know, the dance music or the electronic music industry can play a bigger role to help. You know, music is a great healer. You know, music has done more than any politician has ever done or could do when it comes to, you know, uniting people you know music's a language that no matter what language you speak you understand i know as a dj who's thankfully been able to play all over the world you know i was really lucky and grateful you know i got what um i call my olympic rings many years ago you know playing on all five continents you know i've dj as a black dj from england in places where angels fear to tread you know i was the, the first black dj to come from this country and play behind the old iron curtain in the eighties to play in communist Czechoslovakia, communist East Germany, Romania. And I'm talking, you know, a long time ago, but the crowds that I played to there loved the music, even though we didn't speak the same language.
1: Fantastic. And of course, Good Times continues. You know, you moved it to East London now. What do you think the future holds for the, the Good Times sound system?
2: Well, I think the future is bright for Good Times because Good Times, I don't think, now we'll look for a permanent home. Our permanent home is in London. And wherever we find ourselves in London, I hope good people of London come and find us and and support us. We're looking to stay in East London and do an event there next year. And I'm already talking to people to help me bring some of that authentic Caribbean experience. We want to bring the dancers there. We want to bring the costumes there. We want to bring maybe a float or two there. We want to bring our food there. But most importantly, we want to make it free because that is the essence of Carnival. If we can do an event in East London where we can get someone else to pay for it, hopefully it will be free.
1: Well, that would be fantastic. Mm. So does anyone have any questions for Norman Jay?
2: I know you said that you made your own decks and like reconditioned them, but yeah. of the ones that, if you used any that you didn't recondition, what was your favourite decks that you used and why? Um, Technics, I guess. Yeah, because when I was able to afford the first Technics, obviously years later they became much cheaper and affordable, and they became an industry standard. But when we started with Good Times, buying a turntable was like buying a car, brand new. You know, I had to save up. You know, I was unemployed, had no job. It took about nine months of dull money to pay for a technique. And even then, we couldn't get a prayer. We just bought one. And then within a year, or just over, we had two. And it opened up a whole world of possibilities. I learned to mix, when before, I just used to play and talk. And it just opened up a whole new world of possibilities of being able to play continuous music, which meant I talked less. But I still do talk. I used to, and I still do, I will only speak on a microphone on my own events. There's no real need to be on a microphone talking to people when you've got music playing. Because it's all right for you, and the fairer sex, and the women, because women can multitask. Blokes can't, scientifically proven. So you're either dancing to the music, or you're listening to someone prattling on on the mic. So keep the mic off, keep the music constant. You only need a mic to fill in the space if something's not happening. You know, if you've got, you're working a room and the room's not happening, pull the plug out. You'll soon grab everyone's attention. Stop the music, then you start again. You know, some of the power cuts at good times were deliberate, just refocuses everybody instantly.
0: Having such a vast experience in the music industry, what are you looking forward to in 2017?
2: Staying alive, I guess. Number one priority. But it's funny you use the word music industry because for many years, for over 20 years, when asked about the music industry, I tell everybody, I'm not in the music industry. I have no interest in the music industry. I'm in the entertainment business. I merely use music as a form of that entertainment. Even though in, in the beginning um, my notoriety led to m- me um, gaining a position of, you know, working within the music industry, I think I' fair to say I spent five years in the music business or industry, which up until that point I'd always resisted because I saw the the music establishment as the enemy, as the oppressor. And then I was headhunted, which is the only way to get into it. I was headhunted by the president of Polygram in America to um, come and work for the Polygram group of companies in the UK, which is Island Records, Mercury Records, and a a few others. And at that time, and I'm talking when I took that job, it was in 1989, I was the most senior black A&R man in the country then, equivalent to... You know, all the senior A&R men of other labels in this country. So I know from first-hand experience, and it was great to sit here earlier on and listen to how today's young, aspiring record companies and record labels work. And I listened with interest on on how things have changed, but then they haven't changed. I was like the kingmaker, you know, senior A&R man. I started a a record label with um, my great friend still, Giles Peterson. We started a record label called Talking Loud. And when we were headhunted to go and run this label, we were just a couple of DJs and running a pirate radio station. We had no clue about you know, how record companies worked. So we were given a budget. And what we did was we signed our friends. We signed all our mates. Put them in the studio and let them come up with something. And they did, thankfully for us. I spent five years as a senior A and R man and realized I didn't want to be the head of the company. Because prior to coming there with all my years of experience, particularly of black music, since I was born, I found myself in an environment where all the things I had learned and understood organically were being challenged.